Hello and welcome uh, to the Community Matters Call. My name is Fran Stoddard. We'll be talking about resilient communities today. We'll hear about some great work being done to help communities respond to challenges and unanticipated change. How resilient communities bounce back and become stronger than ever. Community Matters Calls are brought to you by the Orton Family Foundation. They are an ongoing series designed to help people and their communities take charge of their futures. Our speakers today are Michael Crowley, Senior Program Officer at the Institute for Sustainable Communities, headquartered in Montpelier, Vermont, and Christine Morris, Chief Resilience Officer with the City of Norfolk, Virginia. Welcome, Mike and Christine. Thank you very much. you there. Yeah, we're okay. here. Okay, terrific. We're going to get back to uh, both of them in a minute and also challenge them with your questions from the Google document. First, we'll review quickly how this call will work. We have over 175 folks registered today, so we'll be putting you all on mute. We actually have already put you on mute to keep the audio as clean as possible. Later in the call, I may ask someone um, from our listeners to join the conversation to delve a bit deeper into their question or comment that we see on the Google document. And to come off mute, I'll prompt that person, um, if we do that, to press star six. In your email is a link to our Google Doc, a shared online document for note-taking and questions. You can open that in your browser to follow along as the Orton Family Foundation's Caitlin Davison takes notes. You can also add your own comments and questions to the document. It's a good idea to skim through there now to see questions that have already come in to avoid redundancy. If you do have a question during the call, please enter it on that document. We hope that you share your wisdom, comments, and examples by adding to this online document. We'll leave this uh, doc up after the call as well for continued input and for your reference. And in a few days, we'll send a link around to participants so the call notes and the podcast will be available to you. Since the Google Doc can only handle about 50 people as active document editors at a time, if you aren't adding to the document by using the edit button, please close it out and reopen the doc in the read-only mode. And if you're having any trouble with a Google Doc during the call, usually clicking the refresh button should do it. So, on to our guests. Michael Crowley is a Senior Program Officer for the Institute for Sustainable Communities Urban Program. He helps build the capacity of local practitioners in climate adaptation and resilience and sustainability through peer learning workshops and targeted on-the-ground technical assistance. Recently, Michael helped kick off the 100 Resilient Cities program in New Orleans and San Francisco Bay Area, and is currently assisting the Rockefeller Foundation's National Disaster Resilience Competition. Michael is also helping establish the New England Climate Leaders Collaborative. It's a collaborative among the six New England states to work together on regional climate issues. And he's done a lot of other stuff, but you can look that up yourself. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks, Fran, and hi, everybody. Uh, it's really great to be with you all today. Um, so in my introduction here, I'd like to cover uh, three things. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about why the Institute for Sustainable Communities, and we, and we say ISC, uh, focuses on resilience, and, and I'll provide a bit of a working definition of resilience. Uh, second, I'll provide a quick overview of ISC's capacity building services for building resilience. And third, I'll describe ISC's approach to resilience and offer a couple of key lessons that we've learned over the years. So uh, what do we mean by resilience at ISC? Um, well, you might have gathered that resilience has kind of become a new buzzword uh, over the last couple of years, um, and it exists within the lineage of the terms of sustainability and, and climate adaptation, which you might also be familiar with. Uh, to me, resilience really means the ability of a whole system or community to be better prepared for disasters and to, quote, bounce forward and learn from disasters when they occur. Uh, so, for example, a resilient community that experiences a flood will have minimized loss of life because of a well-organized response system, uh, but it goes much deeper. Uh, if homes are damaged or destroyed, the community takes the opportunity to evaluate whether it makes sense to rebuild in the same place or not, um, and may focus on recovery efforts on creating healthier watersheds that provide natural flood defense alongside better hard uh, protection infrastructure. Uh, if families are displaced, the community relies on strong, cohesive social networks that support families in the healing process 
And at the same time, they address chronic stressors that erode social networks like institutional racism, inequality, uh, and actively work toward a more inclusive community. Uh, now, this concept of bouncing forward is a little different than um, the term bouncing back that, that's characterized a lot of the, the discourse around resilience. And it's a small but, but subtle change, I think. Uh, bouncing back, to me, implies that a community rebuilds in the same way as before. Uh, so they keep building in the floodplains or they rebuild the same infrastructure that failed. Uh, bouncing forward means, by contrast, bouncing forward means that a community learns from disasters, they address chronic stressors that may exacerbate those disasters, and they take the opportunity to thoughtfully build back better uh, in a continual process. Uh, and there is, uh, the reason there's so much attention focused on resilience these days is because the globe is really experiencing unprecedented change and stress. Uh, you may have read a recent report that came out that was published stating that uh, four out of nine key planetary boundaries have been crossed. Uh, and that's bringing us one step closer to planetary conditions that literally will not support life as we know it today. Uh, we're up against uh, the, these really unprecedented changes in our, in our global environment. Uh, you've probably experienced these already with extreme weather events. Uh, they're increasing in frequency and severity uh, and in ways that are really taxing our ability to respond. And at the same time, global urbanization is increasing at an unprecedented scale, especially in Asia. Uh, inequality and poverty are at all-time highs. Uh, so all of these conditions are extremely complex. They're getting more complex, and they really do require integrated solutions. So I think resilience offers new approaches to address these complexities because it's fundamentally holistic in nature. Uh, and resilience initiatives all work toward a unifying goal, which is what I would characterize as helping our communities and the natural systems on which they depend become stronger and more connected. Uh, so what do we do at ISC? Uh, quick background on us. We were founded over 23 years ago by the former governor of Vermont, Madeline Kunin, to help build the capacity of local governments and their communities to take meaningful action on environmental and social issues, uh, mainly through better community engagement and innovation at, at the, at the um, government and community scale. Our urban program has been in existence for about six years. It's led by Steve Nicholas, who's the former sustainability director for Seattle. And we've developed three basic service areas. Uh, the first one is we build the capacity of local leaders on a national level through our Sustainable Communities Leadership Academies. Now, these academies are peer learning workshops that bring together cross-sector teams from across the country to share promising practices and what I call kind of behind-the-scenes lessons learned. And these teams are, are then allowed some focused time to work on their strategies together. Uh, one of our Keystone National Learning Academies is through the Housing and Urban Development Office um, of Economic Resilience. Uh, over the last three years, we've managed a learning network of local government grantees from their Sustainable Communities Block Grant Program. Uh, the second uh, area is we support our regional collaborations and networks focused on climate resilience and sustainability. So an example of this is the Southeast Florida Climate Compact. It's a, it's a coalition of four counties and over 100 municipalities in Southeast Florida that share science and legislation and promising practices for addressing climate change and sea level rise. And third, we provide on-the-ground technical assistance to communities that are addressing resilience. So an example of that, uh, we've been working in the state of Vermont uh, through a program called Resilient Vermont. Uh, we've been bringing together stakeholders from across the state to develop a, a resilience roadmap to help focus long-term priorities for the state uh, in the aftermath of Tropical Storm Irene. Uh, so just to close, um, I'd like to just uh, talk about a couple of key observations and lessons learned from our work in this field. Uh, first, we found that it's critical for local governments to take a holistic approach to resilience. Uh, climate change and other stressors don't just affect one sector or service area, but they affect entire communities and the systems that support them. So without effective collaboration across government departments and sectors, resilience really is not possible. Uh, going back to the flooding example, um, if housing is lost, it's no longer adequate to rebuild just the way it was. Instead, this could be an opportunity to bring together planners, local employers, community foundations, churches, etc., to think about ways to increase a sense of place by addressing issues like walkability, open space, economic development, while also preparing for the next flood. And that requires long-term community engagement and multi-stakeholder processes, not just town meetings or, or listening sessions. Uh, 
Uh, and second, um, not only do disasters and climate change affect more than one sector, they also affect entire regions, not just single jurisdictions. And regions have a lot of shared interconnected resources and services like water and transportation uh, that need to be more resilient. So for example, I was recently working with a jurisdiction that shared a river with a neighboring state. The river floods periodically, and when it does, it cuts off critical services like healthcare and access to job centers that exist at various points across the river. Uh, so they're currently creating a regional coalition that brings together key stakeholders like the Army Corps of Engineers, municipal governments, conservation organizations, uh, and anchor institutions to create a, re a regional resilience plan uh, for the river, uh, the riverway. Um, to, that's designed to improve access during floods and build stronger, more, a more regionally connected economy. Uh, so those are just some quick high-level thoughts on resilience. I'd be happy to go deeper on any of those points in the Q&A, uh, but I'll hand it back over to Fran. Terrific, Michael. Thank you so much. And, and indeed, we will go deeper on all of those. It just gives us a grounding um, and on, on all of the things that you have been involved with. And, and Christine has certainly been involved in, you know, this, this collaborative work really seems key, and she's certainly been um, involved in that and other things. So let me tell you a little bit about Christine, and we'll hear from her. Christine Morris is the Chief Resilience Officer. I love this. This is a pretty new title, I think, for, for some people across the United States. She is the CRO for the city of Norfolk, a designation as part of the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities. She began working for the city in 2013 as assistant to the city manager. Prior to joining the team Norfolk, she served as vice president of initiatives for the Hampton Roads Community Foundation, which is the region's premier provider of philanthropic services, including community impact through grants and scholarships and regional leadership. Ms. Morris also served as vice president of training and technical assistance at a consulting firm specializing in organizational and community development projects. In all, Ms. Morris has more than 25 years of experience helping nonprofits improve their management, leadership, strategic planning, and community relations. And clearly, the City of Norfolk is lucky to have her as their Chief Resilience Officer. Thank you, Christine, and welcome to the call. Thank you so much, Fran, and I'm so thrilled to be with you and uh, all your callers today. And um, just listening to Mike, I think he just did a fantastic job in, in uh, setting the groundwork for um, the way a city might think about this topic, and so I'm excited to hear more about what he has to say as well. Um, for my opening uh, conversation, I'd really like to talk about um, this the city of Norfolk and, and the Rockefeller Grant and the way we are thinking currently about resilience planning. And then uh, give you some examples of, of ways that we started to, um, to use those ideas in our actual day-to-day -day activities here in the city. So, um, so for those of you who have never been to the beautiful city of Norfolk, Virginia, I urge you to come. We are a, a fabulous place of about 246,000 people. We're located on the southeast coast of Virginia, uh, and we are all about water. We are 66 miles of uh, city with 144 miles of shoreline, and that's because we are located right there on the Chesapeake Bay, and the rivers and uh, lakes uh, absolutely infiltrate us. So uh, as you might um, uh, guess, flooding is an issue uh, for us, as, uh, and has been an issue for us for 400 years. Uh, the city also has uh, about 120 neighborhoods, which are um, characterized by graceful tree-lined streets, and uh, we really have turn-of-the-century architecture, and um, we're about 95% built out, so we're an old city. Um, we've got a lot of um, uh, old buildings, a lot of old neighborhoods, lots of old infrastructure, but we also have with that a lot of uh, great history and um, uh, wonderful places to be and, and, uh, and live and work and play. Uh, so, um, as you mentioned, Norfolk was uh, chosen by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's 100 Resilient Cities Initiatives, and uh, I am uh, the third Chief Resilience Officer in the world. I think there are more like 25 now, but uh, in July 2014, I took on that title uh, for the city manager. And um, so, uh, when the city is working in its uh, resilience work, we really have committed to using Rockefeller's framework, um, and the basis of that framework is um, really how can uh, an organization or a city build its capacity, um, the capacity of individuals and the community and its systems to survive 
adapt and grow in the face of shocks and stresses. And as, as Mike uh, talked about, even transform itself when the conditions require it. So, um, so w- within that framework, we're really working in three uh, areas, and that is um, those areas are people, building resilience in people, um, building resilience in, in place, uh, building resilience in, in, in organizations, and then building resilience in our knowledge systems. And so I just want to talk a little bit more about what those four areas mean for us. So when we think about building uh, resilience in people, we're talking about their, uh, helping people achieve their own ability to meet their, their own basic needs to ensure that they're healthy and that they're able to make uh, a good living, a livable wage. And then when we're talking about place, that's really the physical stuff, the the infrastructure, the critical services, the ability to move from place to place. When we talk about our organizations, um, we're talking about that engagement, the, the networking, the social capital and social fabric that uh, ensures stability, security issues um, like emergency management and policing. And then, um, you know, do people have access to the financial systems that they need to to make sure that they can um, be resilient? And then when we're talking about um, knowledge, uh, it's a broad idea of knowledge in, in that it's really about strong leadership and management and empowered stakeholders and the ability to plan well and then to implement. And so um, through the resilience work that we've been doing with Rockefeller, we have been asked to identify the city's main stresses. And it was no shock to us when we talked to, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of our stakeholders that uh, 86% said flooding uh, and living on the coast uh, was our biggest resilience channel challenge. Um, but right up there uh, was our economic issues. We are what I would call a company town. We have Naval Station Norfolk here, which is um, the largest naval station in the world and employs about 100,000 people. And uh, it is our number one economic driver, uh, for producing probably regionally about uh, 50% of uh, the economic activity that happens here. And then the final um, stress that, that we identified was um, that, that because we are such a a city of neighborhoods, that when poverty gets concentrated in our neighborhoods, it has a destabilizing effect on the whole city. And so that we really need to think about what brings vitality um, to a neighborhood and then to work on uh, building that, uh, you know, at the at the block and, and neighborhood level. So, um, so one quick example that I wanted to give you guys about uh, how we've been thinking about resilience in Norfolk is... Um, this issue of, of neighborhood vitality. Um, so like many urban communities in America, um, Norfolk, Virginia experienced quite a bit of wealth flight in the, in the 60s and 70s. And um, as the upper and middle class uh, residents sort of moved to the suburbs around here, we began to really um, have some strong concentrations of um, and urban pockets of poverty in our neighborhoods. And so some of the formerly robust commercial strips that dot old um, uh, old cities really became uh, fell into disrepair uh, and uh, you know were no longer the economic engines of the neighborhood. But what they retained was a, a tremendous architectural and community value. And so we have been seeking ways to reinvigorate those um, those uh, those neighborhood corridors. And we uh, took uh, on the the model of the better block. Many of you may be aware of of this model. And and what it really is is for um, stakeholders to come together around an area and for a very short period of time, many times just a weekend, to imagine what the place could be and to actually make that happen through pop-up stores or um, uh, little uh, incubators or or gardens and to and to see if that can spur um, investment at the local level. And so we did this in an area um, of uh, Norfolk that uh, used to be um, uh, an arts district and is very close to many of our museums and uh, our um, art attractions. And uh, so over a weekend, uh, led really by residents of the area, 
many uh, little stores and, and coffee shops and parks and parklets were uh, uh, created. We did some street calming uh, ideas and um, and implemented them and uh, saw what could happen. And, and, and literally thousands of people showed up for two days to experience what this arts district could be. And uh, as a result of that, um, we have uh, seen uh, 15,000 square feet of vacant buildings sold in that area. We've, cha uh, we've changed our zoning to permit art district uses and to uh, simplify processes for uh, new businesses. Um, uh, we've had pop-up shops move to permanency, so rather than just uh, for the weekend, they're actually opening up sh uh, shop there. Um, we have ad advanced some streetscaping ideas and parking and parks um, that we've begun to implement. And there's just a tremendous community buzz around the art district. And and the the final um, sort of metric that that we saw from a an area that was 90% vacant is now 90% either uh, owned or leased along this commercial corridor. So so using that idea of of um, you know community engagement. Um, Good planning, um, flexibility, resourcefulness, um, inclusiveness, uh, that are all those resilience, uh, properties. We were able to really, um, uh, revitalize, uh, a long, a long dormant section of our city. So we're looking for opportunities across the spectrum to do this kind of work and, um, and very interested in talking with you about, um, some of this work and others as we go on this call. So thank you, Fran. Okay, Christine, thank you so much. I think what's, um, what I heard and what's really interesting, among many other things, is that it's not just climate change, but it's economic challenges and, and, and many other changes that are going on uh, throughout North America uh, that are challenging our cities and our, our small um, rural communities as well. Which um, So we'll get into the, um, the questions uh, period, and Ken from California has asked, what challenges besides climate change-related ones do you anticipate? And, and clearly we've heard about economic challenges. There might be other ones. And, and he adds to that question, do you anticipate that business as usual will be available for us to bounce back to? And I, and I think that Mike also brought up that, no, we hope to bounce forward. Uh, because things are really changing. Um, so maybe, Mike, you can start with talking about what kinds of changing conditions are should we anticipate, and um, maybe you can address a little bit the bounce forward, and I hope Christine um, adds in after you you finish. Go ahead, Mike. Sure. Thanks, Fran. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that you know, when I look at, at climate, I see that as the primary driver of change for a lot of integrated systems. Um, and I think that that clearly it's all interrelated. Um, all of these phenomena are interrelated. So it just depends on what lens you're putting on at that moment. Um, I think clearly what we've seen in the last couple of weeks with the demonstrations as a result of uh, Ferguson and, and uh, the, the case in New York City has shown a, a real um, um, uh, tension uh, with institutional racism and inequality, uh, and I think that that's only been growing as a movement uh, going back all the way to the Occupy protests and so forth. So I see economic distress and inequality and the legacy of institutional racism as being huge drivers uh, of change that hopefully, you know, clearly we don't want to go back to business as usual there. Um, I think as, as far as, you know, can we bounce bounce back to business as usual. Um, I think you know, one of the things we talk about a lot at ISC is the relationship between climate adaptation or resilience and, and mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions that are, that are causing climate change. Uh, and those two really need to go hand in hand. In the field, there's been a, a, a bit of an artificial separation between the two, and, and now we're starting to put them together again. Um, but I think that the transition from uh, fossil fuels to renewable fuels is a massive change that's that's starting to really take off recently. That, for example, the um, the solar uh, industry has been um, growing exponentially in size over the last couple of years, and there's a shift toward what's called distributed generation. So getting away from the centralized 
uh, energy sources through kind of the outdated utility grid to a lot of different producers happening in a decentralized way through a smart grid. Um, so those are new business models that are being created that um, that I, I really do think hold a lot of promise uh, for the future. But I think that clearly we one of the, the things that we need to be taking much more seriously is is getting off of our fossil fuel addiction and, and dealing with the causes of climate change as well as preparing for its impact and looking at it from a system perspective that, that incorporates all the other stresses along with it. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, it's, it's a pretty big question, but there are these there are a lot of conditions that we might anticipate. Um, Christine, you were really talking about a kind of neighborhood vitality due to urban um, flight. What, what are, how do you look at this question about different changing conditions that we might anticipate as we look at trying to create resilience in our communities? Um, sure. Thanks, Fran. Um, we're really thinking about it um, in, in a lot of different ways. You know, obviously waters, how do we live better with water is one of the issues that we're thinking about very carefully. And, and really to think about that is not only the downside of of living with water, but we have a tremendous upside for living with water. I mean, our whole economy is driven by water. So so when I think about, you know, sort of the types of change that, that are going to occur, I don't always think about them as, as driven by natural impact, but sometimes just what people desire. So what we see here at the local level is that, you know, people want to live differently. They don't necessarily want to live in a suburban um, community anymore. Some, you know, there are lots of population that want to move back into the cities in the United States, and that creates a tremendous opportunity for a place like Norfolk. Demographics are shifting. Um, you know, the baby booms, uh, you know, is moving up, and millennials um, are, are taking uh, our place, and they they want different kinds of things. They want a different kind of connectivity, um, a, a different way of transportation, you know, uh, networking and transportation. Um, so I think that drives some of our thinking about how do we become uh, a place of choice for um, for talent going in the future. I think the way that we use information and, and how, um, you know, people are, are really able to, to live anywhere that they want and do work from home or from, you know, distributive offices, and I think that changes a lot the way that um, that that cities and communities will look in the future. And it gives us tremendous potential to reimagine what a city could look like in 50 years and how you would use land and how you would think about economic activity and how you would think about social cohesion in ways that we've never even really imagined before. And, and that, I think, is the exciting part of this change. Well, it, it takes me to uh, Tracy from New Hampshire's question. You're really focused on cities, and yet rural towns are also having a, a, a similar issue of they might be losing their schools or stores. They're, they're really changing. The character of those towns might be changing, resulting from a shifting population. And Tracy asks, how do you rebuild a sustainable community? In other words, once things really shift, is there how do you then begin to rebuild or shift what you're doing? Mike, I know that you're involved in Resilient Vermont, and, and actually, actually uh, Andrew also asked about resources for rural communities. What are you doing in Resilient Vermont to rebuild communities after there has been a significant change or challenge? Sure. Well, <laughs> we've been leading this Resilient Vermont uh, work for about two years now uh, to help transition from the recovery from Tropical Storm Irene to to long-term planning. And the way that we've approached it is to start by understanding um, what, who are the actors in Vermont, who are the key stakeholders that, that, uh, that, are, that will contribute to this long-term vision. And, and we've seen our role as basically enabling a network, uh, at this point a rather informal network, but a network of, of actors that are, that are doing really innovative, interesting things around the state. Uh, and we'd like to create a learning community so that, uh, you know, if they're innovating in one place, uh, they can take those lessons and adapt them to another place. Um, you know, in Vermont, we've seen a lot of interesting shifts happening um, in, in our kind of bedrock industries. Uh, one, one example is the ski industry in Vermont. Um, it's been uh, me being, you know, I'm a, a big snowboarder and, and backcountry skier. I've seen the changes absolutely over the last couple of years. 
and it's been uh, it potentially could really hurt the ski industry. Uh, Sugarbush Vermont is one of the the members of our our network. Uh, they've seen a, a you know degrading winter conditions uh, for their skiing, but they've actually been able to increase their business because they've looked at the shoulder seasons and they've looked at the off season, and they've been able to diversify and expand what. Uh, the types of services that they're providing. Um, so they've actually been able to increase their revenue just by thinking a little bit differently and out of the box. You know, they don't see themselves only as a ski resort, but they see themselves as an outdoor resort. So I think just kind of looking at what are the assets that you have at play and then thinking about uh, you know, how can you utilize those uh, in an adaptive way goes a pretty long way. And at the same time, develop a network of other industries and other folks that you can learn from and share stories from. Uh, is really important. Right. Great. It seems that networking keeps coming up as, as something that's very important. And Jacqueline from New York um, asks, what is or what can be the role of collaborating with partners from other sectors, business, government, nonprofit, in building resilient communities? What are the most important tactics, tools, skills needed to forge successful cross-sector collaborations in efforts to boost community resilience? And I know, Christine, you and Norfolk actually had an agenda-setting resilience workshop that brought in uh, partners from um, many different sectors, I, I believe. So do you want to address that whole um, how does collaborating work? Uh, what do you do to uh, forge those successful collaborations? Sure. So um, it's absolutely critical. I mean, just with the, the constraint that everyone has with resources, there's just no way to make any, you know, uh, significant headway uh, on your own, nor do I think that you should want to look at the world that way, that it is only through these um, cross-disciplinary conversations that real innovation, I think, can occur. So, you know, not only is it necessary, but I think it's even, you know, um, desirable to, to look for and talk with people who um, view the world slightly differently um, than you do. And and uh, the, the innovation really can start there. Uh, but I do think that if you're going to ask people to come on a journey with you, that you have to be very respectful that um, – that it has to be, you know, important work, that it has to be meaningful, um, and that it has to be time delineated, um, that the goals have to be clear, that what you're asking them at the, at the beginning, um, is concrete so that they can get their mind around it, um, and, and then, then that you look for those places where, um, like, uh, interests intersect, and that, that you really forge uh, ahead with partners in different areas that where you know your um, your desires and and your goals really align well um, because i I think that um, sometimes you can seek partnership across too wide a swath where the goals don't align and and the the power of the partnership can can dissipate so um, it's a delicate balance between you know having everybody at the table and having few too few people at the table but i think if you if you think about trying to look for diversity around ideas and then alignment to to goals you'll go a long way into having success great really really good points christine thank you so much um, I, I want to get to a, a very specific question that actually just came in, and, and we will go back um, to some of the other questions that came in earlier. But um, this is from uh, Rebecca in Vermont. Uh, are you aware of any good resilience assessments out there for communities to evaluate their own resilience in a range of key areas? In other words, environmental, social, economic. The assessments that um, Rebecca has seen, including those that are um, on the Google Doc, all seem to be limited to one specific area, such as climate change or smart growth. Um, do either one of you know of other resilience assessments out there that, that might have a broader range? And maybe the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so, uh, so I, I would say, Fran, that um, – We've been working with the Rockefeller Foundation around a tool that Arup has been in development with, and it's um, still in its in its scoping phase. But what it really tries to do is for you to identify uh, sort of those areas that you, that you're seeking resilience in, and to try to score yourself against those um, 
that those areas by identifying those um, those areas that that are critical for um, resilience around those four areas of people, knowledge, organization, and place. And then to really score yourself uh, with respect to that, and then to use that uh, in a in a group setting to have other people score, and and you, you start to get this idea of of collectively where everybody thinks you're doing pretty well, and where everybody thinks you're doing pretty poorly. And so um, we have we have done that. And while it's not a you know it's not a great scientific sampling or, um, you know, what it really does is it focuses, it enables you to focus the community around a conversation about why you think resilience is lacking in those areas. Is it people-based? Is it, you know, knowledge-based? Is it um, because the infrastructure isn't there? Is it because the um, cohesiveness and, and the organizational structures are not there? Um, you know, is it? A, I, I haven't seen a perfect tool, but but I thought that one was pretty good. Okay, yeah, this, thanks. This, Go ahead, Mike. This is Mike, just add to that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely, there definitely is not a perfect tool out there, and I think the reason for that is every place is different. There's, every place has different contexts and different priorities, and it would be really difficult, I think, to create a tool that could encompass all of the different uh, approaches to resilience and, and priority areas. So I, I usually try to focus on the engagement process itself, just like Christine was mentioning. You know, how... What are some ways that you can really draw out uh, some of the voices and perspectives in the community to get kind of this intersubjective view of what's important, uh, combined with some science as well? You know, where are your your key risk areas, where your you know what assets are, are really uh, at stake here. Uh, so I think, but yeah, it's I, it's it's not really uh, it's still such an early early field that there isn't one kind of key tool that's going to do it for you. Uh, one thing that I'm working on uh, with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, this is a network of sustainability directors from the U.S. and Canada, is to actually evaluate all of these tools and to uh, kind of pick out what we think are the best parts of each uh, and then potentially create something um, customized to, to this network itself. Um, so that's just one example. Of, you know, I think there's a lot of movement in action right now looking at these different indicators and kind of figuring out the best way to move forward. Right. I, I see that Brian from Santa Fe is also interested in the bottom line indicators and scoreboards. Um, so e even if they take some of these um, assessment tools just to get a, a baseline, would probably would you recommend that people do that, um, get some kind of a baseline with something here to at least see how things are changing or progressing? I, I think so. Um, you know, I, and I would suggest to keep it simple at first. Um, you know, there is a tool, I'm not sure if it's linked there, uh, that was developed by um, the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium. Um, that's, it's a very simple kind of checklist uh, and process that you can go through to identify what are the key assets that are at risk right now. And I think that would be a good place to start. Um, just uh, keep it really simple, really high level. Uh, identify where, where where your key risks are, where your key um, and where your key stressors are, and kind of build out from there. Okay, um, I want to get to that. We had a couple of questions actually about growth that's happening in some areas, which is creating some challenges. Uh, Shane in Massachusetts wants um, us to speak to gentrification, if I can say it as one possible change that a community might experience. And also, Mike from North Carolina speaks about the triangle there, uh, which is in the process of implementing light rail through those communities. He says, uh, we are halfway through the FTA process and are dealing with issues of affordable housing, sustainable communities, cost constraints, with ever-increasing population and growth. What examples across the nation have there been that have weathered this kind of dramatic change and growth and still maintain some of their historical and cultural heritage along the way? So um, I'd like to hear from both of you, but maybe we'll start with Christine, who I'm sure Norfolk has a lot of historic, hysteric, uh, historical and <laughs> cultural heritage. <laughs> that, sorry about that slip. Uh, that they would want to maintain. Have you had issues around growth or how to maintain that while growth is happening? So I think we have done this poorly and well at different stages of our history. Um, we indeed, um, you know, did some um, 
when we did some redevelopment uh, because of some really blighted areas, I think we did some very uh, – I think we, we would assess ourselves as doing a poor job in, in, in gentrifying um, a neighborhood that really should have been uh, more uh, integrated in, in our thinking. I think we're doing it a lot better now, um, but we still have a long way to go. Um, one of the, the the keys to us doing it well is for it to be resident-driven. And one area that we have been working very hard to, to um, improve the quality of the neighborhood, we asked the, the, the actual residents to, to go out and, and rate um, what's important in the neighborhood and what it's going to take to in, improve uh, the quality of life in that neighborhood. And then for them to create a plan about how to um, move their neighborhood forward in the way that they would like to see it move forward and then to create metrics around that, whether they be affordable housing metrics or quality of life metrics or, or whatever. And then that the, that the city would only fund things that were in that resident-driven plan. Um, so, so that is, I think, one way to, to attack that idea. Um, but, you know, when growth is, is, is coming and, and there's a lot of money moving into a community, if you haven't done the planning up front, it's very, very difficult to, to stall those efforts. Great. Thank you. Uh, Mike, anything to add about growth and how to manage that type of change? Well, I think, um, you know, one one strategy that I've seen um, uh, carried out pretty effectively is simply in your in your zoning, make sure that you're including um, mixed income housing. Um, so it's not just being affordable housing in one neighborhood. You know, that's actually quite um, destructive. I think. It, rather, you know, really be clear about you know what are the mixed uh, incomes that you want in your neighborhoods, um, and that's a policy decision that 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 you can make. Uh, the other thing that I'll just mention quickly is um, connecting that to to transportation. Um, the Center for Neighborhood Technology, based out of Chicago, uh, created a really wonderful index where they look at uh, livability uh, in cities. Uh, typically, livability, you're, you're just looking at um, housing costs. Uh, but what they've done is they've looked at housing costs uh, and transportation. They call it the Housing Plus Transportation Index. Uh, and they found that you know, while it it's generally tends to be more expensive to live near public transportation, overall cost it's overall it costs less because you're not spending as much on your car. Uh, so I think having metrics like that is really important to help with kind of integrated uh, planning uh, that's that's focused on equity and affordability. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go on to a, it's a pretty technical question, but we'll we'll see uh, where it goes. It's um, it's from Brett. He asks, what are your thoughts on resilience initiatives? And he lists a lot of people. He lists the 100 resilient communities. And then a number, NIST, ASCE, ANSI, ISO. These are all science and standards institutes and societies and various uh, U.S. federal agencies. Uh, so, you know, I know that there are things happening um, with the president's initiatives, uh, Mike, that you might have federal at the federal level through HUD and EPA. So maybe we'll start there, um, Mike, about tips to tap into what's happening at the federal level, and then we'll see, you know, where these other standards um, institutes come into play. So how can how can folks tap into what's happening on a, on a federal level, Mike? Well, I think. Um the the latest initiative that just came out of the White House was the President's Task Force on Climate Adaptation, um, and he brought together um, mayors and governors and community leaders from across the country to deliver to him uh, a series of recommendations uh, that that they could implement at the federal level uh, on climate adaptation. Uh, I think there are about 144 recommendations, <laughs> so I won't attempt to go through them. But um, <clears throat> and that was cut down considerably uh, from the list that they came up with. Uh, but what that means, so so that was just published um, 
I think probably about two months ago or so. I can't remember exactly. Um, but now local communities uh, are trying to figure out how to implement them and how to work with federal agencies to implement them. Uh, I'll just give you a, a quick example of the work that I'm doing in New England with the, the New England uh, Collaborative of, of the six states. So we're working with the environment commissioners from each of those states. Uh, they're looking at the task force recommendations. Uh, at the same time, they're doing an inventory of all the, the federal programs that are happening regionally, uh, and they're talking to uh, local communities on the ground to get a sense of what their needs are. And so we're working to align all of these priorities and needs and to come up with a unified um, strategy across all six states that they could then bring to the federal government to uh, to help enable some work on the ground. One of the things that they've that they've discovered and realized over time is that they haven't really uh, articulated what their needs are to the federal government. So these agencies are kind of working on their own and figure, trying to figure it out for their own. So there's a real alignment occurring now in New England, and I should say in a lot of other uh, regions across the country that are thinking along the same lines. Terrific. So maybe the folks that are listening can find out who else is doing this work to, to make more recommendations. Um, and so, so back to this other other question. Maybe Christine, you can tell us a little bit more about 100 Resilient Cities and the Rockefeller Foundation and how that works. I'm not sure how it plays into the science and standards institutes and societies, but that's my failing. Uh, so you might enlighten us there with that question. Sure. So the the 100 Resilient Cities um, initiative of the Rockefeller Foundation is uh, basically a three-year, uh, well, I guess it's a 10-year effort, and it's really um, three years for each city that is that are selected. And so the the first cohort was uh, selected in in 2013, the end of 2013. The second cohort in the end of 2014, and there'll be a third cohort of cities that can apply, and these are uh, across the globe. They'll uh, have picked 100 cities by December 2016 um, that are eligible for um, the resources uh, associated with the organization, including um, uh, resources to hire a chief resilience officer, access to this 100 Resilient Cities Network, um, uh, access to platform partners that uh, can provide services to the city, and uh, and then um, uh, then to, just to uh, the opportunity to work directly with uh, Rockefeller. So um, so the the 100 Resilient Cities is still an opportunity for any city that is on the line and has not yet um, uh, applied for it, and, and I'm, I'm guessing the applications will be sometime in the fall next year for the December. Um, Work uh, um, and with respect to the to the other organizations, I, I think what what's happening is that people are trying to get their um, uh, to, to uh, as Mike said align their thinking around what this resilience idea is. It holds a lot of promise, um, but I, I think it, it's been um, uh, difficult for people to understand how what they do sort of plugs into it. And a lot of these efforts uh, underway are are to standardize um, uh, some of the thinking around what does it mean to to be a, a resilient system, and how should um, the you know the federal agencies support that system building. Um, so I think we've we, you know we've come a long way, but I think there's still a long way to go, and I think there are some opportunities to for these various organizations to work together to come out with a framework that is common uh, where people can really get their mind around how to think about this work. And it's my understanding that the 100 Resilient Cities and the Rockefeller um, Foundation is also working on, of course, as you say, putting together best practices. How yes. can we do this so everybody, uh, that, that information and wisdom will be shared? Yes, across the network and, and outside the network of 100 right. Cities. Yeah. Right. Uh, another question that came in, um, how have you worked resilience planning and hazard mitigation into disaster recovery plans? One would think that these would go hand in hand. Um, is, that, is that true or um, is that something you're still working on? So in other, the question again, how have you worked resilience planning into disaster recovery plans? Um, so I'll take that one. Um, so the way the way that we're thinking about it is that we're we're envisioning the city that we want to be in the next 50 to 100 years, 
And um, we're trying to use all of the tools that we use to build our city every day and all of the systems that interact with our uh, to make our city work. Um, begin to imagine how they would change to make that city become a reality. And I know that's a, 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 a big vision. And and so for things like our planning, uh, our zoning code that Mike talked about, we're 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 actively talking about what does it mean um, to to have uh, to use land in a in a place where water is going to flow to different places, and how should we think about that? And how, what does that mean to the private owner? And what does that mean um, uh, to the to the public spaces? And how should we think about using them? And I think if we can go through each of the systems that hit you know together to make our city work every day, our electrical systems and our transportation systems, and and um, and see how they interact, and see how we would like them to. To what we'd like them to deliver in in a, in a city that's 50 years from now, then we can envision that should some disaster befall us, what we would build back, or or as Mike said, build forward. Um, and so that's the way we're thinking about it. That we want to do the upfront work here to say what what is the city we would want to build if if it um, if it disappeared tomorrow. And then let's build that every day going forward. And so we'll have two plans that are really the same, right? The city we're building and the city we would build if something should happen. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, it makes sense to me, Mike. Anything okay. to add to that? I said that was pretty clear to me, but you, you've been working with on, on both ends of this. Yeah, I think, I think that's, um, that was a terrific approach. And I, what we've seen kind of across the country is, uh, the, the traditional hazard mitigation work uh, starting to incorporate uh, climate projections, so not just looking at past disasters as an indicator of future disasters, but looking at uh, future shifts. Um, and that's hard to do because, you know, we have climate models, but climate is pretty unpredictable. So uh, so they're starting to think about, you know, what, what might be changing down the line. Um, and uh, so I think hazard, the, the hazard, hazard mitigation community is really starting to uh, embrace a lot of different stakeholders in their planning around around uh, trying to assess these future risks. And I think it's an overall really really positive movement. Okay, um, I want to get down to uh, Gabe from North Carolina. Uh, wonders to your reaction to anti-fragile by Nassim Talib. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. Which really seems to be uh, a town that is challenged, or a place that is challenged, gains from chaos. That um, a place that is put under stress is able to come back um, better, uh, stronger when subjected to stress and tension. These resilient, um, the resilient resist shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better and better. So it's this whole concept that if you're under stress, you actually will have a stronger and better community. You're, you're, um, I think, uh, Mike, you're familiar with this. Your quick reaction. It, would you recommend it as a book for our listeners to read? Uh, I, I've read sections of it. I admit that I have not read the whole thing, partly because it is actually a pretty technical book. <laughs> so if you have a lot of time on your hands and you want to really dig in, yes, go for it. Um, and I think that um, it has been pretty influential in, in some academic circles and, and other places. Uh, what I what I take away from it is essentially what we've been talking about on, on this call in terms of bouncing forward. Um, and, you know, that that you want to you want to take these shocks these these perturbations as opportunities uh to get stronger as you go and you know and the way they describe anti-fragile is that these systems actually need those those perturbations or those those shocks and stressors in order to stay healthy um uh which i think is a little bit of a it's an interesting way of looking at it it's kind of flipping on its head a little bit i mean i i think um you know my my uh my background, I studied complexity and chaos, and there's a lot of really interesting things we can go into about that. Um, but uh, one of the, you know, when you look at ecological systems, um, when when something happens to an ecological system and system and they experience a kind of chaotic shift, uh, if they're healthy and dynamic enough, and if they're interconnected enough, they can usually shift into a different phase and adapt really quickly. Uh, and that's actually really healthy because if they don't have some kind of shakeup to their system, then they start to get um, 
uh, more ordered uh, in, in what they're doing, uh, and, and less, and, and they lose their ability to actually adapt. So I think having these periodic shocks is actually a healthy thing uh, in biology, and I think it, it should be in, in human systems as well. I don't know if that makes Great. sense. But. Yes, um, thank you. And I, I saw it happen in Vermont, where towns that e even having a community garden would help make them because they'd already had systems um, in place. You know, we, we've got a question coming in, and, and some other questions about communications, and uh, when there is an emergency or disaster, that becomes uh, something that's difficult. Whether you're using mobile devices or you're putting messages on doors. Uh, how would you say, um, what are some best practices or tips about communication strategies during a crisis? Christine? Well, so I'm, I'm going to be honest and say that's not my um, area of expertise yet, um, but one thing that we're really thinking about is the neighbor-to-neighbor the -neighbor connection, um, which might not be answering the question. I, I know that we have emergency um, uh, systems that people can send, you know, sign up for and get the, the Nextel um, alert and um, and we have other, uh, you know, we have our Facebook and we have lots of uh, communication devices, but but you know the the thing that really keeps me up at night is is the pictures of people um you know in places where they couldn't they couldn't be gotten to or they they didn't leave early enough because there was something that hold, that held them to the community and and I want to think about how we use the neighbor to neighbor connection to make sure that people who are um you know fragile or vulnerable in our neighborhoods that live there every day with support services um, you know, don't move to at risk in, the, in an emergency event. And, and the way that I think the best way that we can do that is to make sure that neighbor connection is done uh, so that we have a, 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 an agreement between two people that says, you know, if, if something happens, I, I, can, I can keep you safe for a couple of days until the power comes back on or, or you know, somebody can get to you. Um, but together, together we'll get through it. Um, uh, you know, the communication devices, I think, um, are great uh, to tell people, you know, there are resources and there are things that you can do. But I think the most resilient communities are the ones that have the most social cohesion and people-to-people and -people contact. Right. And, and following up on this, uh, maybe the same question, Mike, uh, Sharam uh, from uh, New York asked, what measures have you taken for energy security under emergency power outage conditions. So again, that would be a real communications issue if there's the power goes out. Any any quick tips there and then we're going to get right to um our close. Yeah, um okay. I I think that is certainly uh, it's, it's an issue with our current grid system. Uh when the grid goes down, it, our grid as it stands now is actually not very resilient at all. Uh, I mentioned distributed generation uh, earlier, and I think that holds a lot of promise um, uh, into the future. Uh, one example that I've heard of uh, in Berkeley, California, uh, they are currently looking at solar as a resilience measure, uh, that if they can get houses that have solar panels on the roofs and have battery backups, then when the grid goes down, uh, you'll still have power at your house. It's, right now, it's still a concept uh, for them, but that's, that's a strategy that they're pursuing. Great. There's so much to consider here, and there are other issues that we haven't even gotten to around collaboration or grant funding. Um, if any of you have ideas for some of these people that are, that are say, looking for money, um, please add them to the Google Doc. Uh, before we, we finish up, I'd like to ask one last question of our guests, which is, you know, if there's one thing that people can do next week to start building for resilience or, or planning um, as soon as they get offline, what would that be? Christine, what would you advise? So I, I think I would take the time to um, understand the, the risks and stresses that uh, are, are a part of your community, and I'd start to bring people together to start talking about why those things are, are stresses and what we're currently doing about them and what we think um, we might like to do about them collectively. Okay, great. And Mike? Uh, Christine, that's exactly what I would say as well. I think that's, that's exactly right on. And um, uh, maybe one other strategy uh, within that frame would be to put together uh, a working group, uh, depending if, if you're in a local government or uh, a community-based organization, put together a group of people that are dedicated to carrying that mission forward. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Mike Crowley, for your insights and knowledge. Thank you, Fran. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Christine Morris, for your great tips today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you. It feels like a huge topic. We've just uh, barely gotten under the surface. We hope that you contribute to this Google Doc, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to this um, topic in the future. Thank you so much, Mike and Christine. For a robust choice of resources on resilience, check out the bottom of the Google Doc. There are lots there. And we hope you, uh, again, of course, add your comments, answers, and expertise. A podcast of this call and call notes will be emailed around and posted online. Caitlin um, has also put a link of a, for a very brief survey at the top of the Google Doc in the announcement section, so please take a moment to complete the survey and tell us about your experience on today's call. It will help us learn how we can make the series more useful to you. Coming up in February, the Orton Family Foundation will be offering two events. One is a talk similar to, to today's call when we'll look at community network analysis. It's a tool to unlock potential and talent in your community. That's on Thursday, February 12th. Then on Thursday, February 26th, we'll offer the first of a series of training webinars on community heart and soul, an inclusive approach to strengthen communities by making decisions based on what matters most to your residents. Thank you all for participating with this Community Matters call. We hope you walk away with some rich ideas for a more resilient community. For all of us at the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Hope to see you next time.